0: And welcome inside to another episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. Today we have a very special guest. We have Michael Ashton, Director of Player Health and Head Athletic Trainer for the Washington Wizards. Michael, welcome on in. Thank you, Chase. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. All right. We've had this podcast in, uh, in the works for coming up on a year. So um, I'm excited to kind of get to talk to you a little bit more about your journey. So kind of tell me a little bit more about you know where you grew up and how you got into physical therapy in the first place
1: absolutely again it is truly an honor and a pleasure to to be speaking with you tonight so i was born in akron ohio but raised in white sulfur springs west virginia small town maybe 3000 people very close knit community one of those communities where everybody had permission to reprimand you if you were in trouble you know so you really couldn't get away with anything so yeah <laughs> Um, From there, um, I went to High Point University in North Carolina to pursue an undergraduate degree in athletic training. From there, I went to Hampton University in Virginia to pursue a doctorate in physical therapy degree. Worked for about a year and then decided to pursue the journey of manual therapy, so I chose to go to the Ola Grimsby Institute, where I did about three years of schooling. I did a year certification that required me to travel one to two times a month for a year to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The residency component of it actually had me relocate from DC to Little Rock, Arkansas, where I did a year and actually got to do an apprenticeship at the same time. And then the third year was the fellowship where I had to travel back and forth from Little Rock to Seattle, Washington, one to two times a month for an entire year. So that kind of sums up my education background. And from a work standpoint, Primarily worked in outpatient orthopedics for the majority of my career. You know, I had a little stint with the Department of Defense, which was pretty exciting. Did a little bit of home health, did some traveling, physical therapy, consulted with a local university for a little while. I actually got to do some per diem work with with a country club in golf. So kind of been a little bit of everywhere. Now I've landed in my dream job in sports. So that's kind of a little bit about me.
0: Okay. So Michael, after you went through uh, PT school and then you decided to do the, the residency slash fellowship program, what kind of made you want to go back and do even more schooling after, you know, going through PT school and athletic training school?
1: It was one of those things where, you know, again, I practiced for a little bit before I decided to pursue that. And I just wasn't confident in my skills. It was one of those things where there were people that were getting better and I really couldn't explain. And then there was there were others that weren't. And so me wanting to be the best for my patients, I wanted to make sure I pursued a residency and a fellowship
0: so I could uh, upskill in my craft. Gotcha. Um, and so at this point in your career, you said you had a bunch of different stops and different aspects of outpatient orthopedics. Did you know that you know professional sports was your ultimate goal or did you kind of know that earlier on in your career while you're going through uh, PT and athletic training school?
1: I knew professional sports was the goal. I mean, really, back in high school, uh, my senior year, that's when I made a decision that I wanted to be a rehabilitation specialist for professional athletes, specifically basketball. Basketball is my first love. I actually played in high school. Me getting injured actually led me to discovering what an athletic trainer was. I mean, I had interest in the medical field because, like many others, I knew I wasn't going to go professional playing basketball, so I figured if I couldn't play, why not treat them and so when I had gotten injured myself, discovered that there was a field out there that you can actually treat athletes that's besides um that which pointed me in the direction to go athletic training and physical therapy
0: gotcha um and so I want to talk to you know we don't have to go into every every stop of your your journey in outpatient, but what are some of the things that you learned in like outpatient? that you think helped you in your journey to getting into professional sports and some things that you might even use now in outpatient or you know, things you use now in professional sports that you've learned from outpatient?
1: I would say the reps. In professional sports, you don't get as many reps because you're not seeing as many people depending on the sport that you're seeing. In outpatient, I mean, what is it? The average number of people you see is between 12 and 16 people. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing close to 60 to 80 different people a week. So just seeing different pathologies, getting to treat the whole body, seeing people who have the same diagnoses but present differently, just kind of build your wheelhouse of things so that when you get in professional sports, there really isn't much that you haven't seen. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, you are exposed to many more resources that you don't have in your typical outpatient clinic. So now you have all those things that you would want when you were in product practice. So when you start in product practice, you just don't have as much. So when you go to professional sports, you now have everything you need to, to serve the, the patient slash athlete slash client.
0: Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, eventually you get into pro- professional sports and you were with the Oklahoma city thunder. Um, kind of tell us a little bit, your, uh, you know, kind of the journey and how you kind of got there, you know, you don't have to get into every specific, but kind of tell us a little bit more about that journey.
1: The journey was long. <laughs> I mean, very long. I didn't break into professional sports until my 10th year of practicing. And what I tell people is, I really didn't have the network. So I had to get creative and just getting myself out there. I mean, if you look at my journey, that's part of the reason why I went through the fellowship so I could build my skill set so that when that opportunity came, I would be ready. But it took me actually applying to EXOS. So are you familiar with EXOS? Mm-hmm. We have one here in Florida, up in Pensacola. Okay. So at the time, it was called Athlete's Performance. And so I was forever, just like many others out there, searching on Google, just looking for openings. While well, I was noticing that a lot of professional sports teams were plucking physical therapists from Athlete's Performance, which then turned to EXOS. So since I really didn't have a direct connect, I didn't have much of a network. I was like, well, I have to find a way to get there. So maybe once I get there and get that on my resume, learn some of the things that they're doing, maybe I'll become appealing to professional sports jobs, which is basically how I ended up working for the Department of Defense. I was actually on the tactical side of XOs, and I worked there for a year and a half, and then an opportunity opened up in the G League. I applied for it. There wasn't an opening, but the person who responded to me was his interest was piqued because of my manual therapy background. I was dual-credentialed as an athletic trainer, and then of course I'm here working at Exos, which is known for developing performance therapists. So we kept in contact. A position
0: came open. I interviewed for it, and I got it. So I actually started in the G League as a head athletic trainer. Gotcha. What are some of the things that um, you know athletes' performance and now Exos, you know, kind of? created or you know fostered in those therapists that you know a lot of professional sports teams that were appealing that they were going in and taking those therapists from from the, those locations
1: i would say you know you're hearing the the title performance therapist i think their model really really promotes that i mean that's what their model is all about performance physical therapy bridging the medical and the performance model so the way that they structure things it makes it really organized so for me like many others, I took the CSCS study, took the exam, passed it. But that information was a little confusing. I mean, you really had to do a lot to make sense of it. The model that EXOS had at the time really made sense. And the way that they taught it, really the components of what they taught helped you as a therapist It help you communicate across the line with performance specialists, with nutritionists and such. So I think just being in that environment, having to work with those individuals, understanding what they do helped me in the in the professional setting because you're working with some of those same professionals.
0: Right. So now I want to talk a little bit more about you 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 know, you go from Exos into the the into the G League. Kind of tell us a little bit more about your experience there and then kind of leading us into the journey where you ended up working for the uh the main team in the OKC Thunder after that.
1: Well, that was a whirlwind because like I told you, I had been out of school and practicing for 10 years, but it had been about 13 years since i had done anything athletic training wise, traditionally. Mm -hmm. So it was one of those things here. I get hired. You know, I am an athletic trainer, but it's a different mindset. You know, you're when you're an athletic trainer, your job doesn't just apply to clinical. You're now having to dive into the emergency medicine type of things. But even just prepping for trips, doing inventory, packing bags. So I was really, really nervous because it's like I hadn't had to tape an ankle in who knows how long. And my wife didn't make it much better because she was an athlete herself. And so before I got the job, she's like, look, I know you're a good clinician and all, but your first exposure to these athletes is not going to be treatments. It's going to be taping ankles and making ice bags. And you can lose a locker room if you can't do either one of them. I'm like, well, I haven't done either one of them in years. So it was definitely <laughs> it was definitely a big learning curve, and I'm very fortunate that they were patient with me. But I was really, I was appreciative because forever I felt like I was an imposter. Because again, I started off with athletic training, then I went straight to PT school. So forever I carried this athletic training certification but practice primarily as a PT. So now it's finally getting the opportunity to actually utilize the athletic training side of things, which was exciting and scary at the same time because it was almost like I had to start all over, you know, just <laughs> being humble, learning, you know, getting reps, taking lumps on the head as I went. So I was very appreciative of it. So I did that for two years, very steep learning curve, got the opportunity to go to, the parent team with the OKC Thunder, and continued doing the same role that I was doing with the, the OKC Blue.
0: Gotcha. Um, and so kind of tell us a little bit about your transition from OKC now to where you are at now with the in Washington.
1: So the transition, and now my role is greater in scale and scope. So when I was in OKC, I was a dual credential. I was PTATC, But I w- didn't have responsibilities that catered to the whole department. So really, it's kind of like you're a clinician, you know, you have your caseload, you have your responsibilities, but, you know, the scale just wasn't as large, I can kind of go in deep with scope. Now, I'm not only responsible for, like, I still have the PT and ATC responsibilities, I still carry a caseload, but now I'm responsible for putting policies and procedures for our whole department in regards to player health, so making sure that I'm getting the players to the specialists that they need, making sure that we have emergency response procedures in place. And not only for the Wizards, but we also have two other basketball operations running under our umbrella. We have the Washington Mystics, which is the WNBA team, and then the Capital City Go-Go, which is our G League. So I have my hand in a lot of their procedures as well.
0: Right. And so I guess when you're looking back at when you were just strictly a PTATC, versus now when you're kind of looking at this 30,000-foot view, trying to make sure that you have three different organizations, making sure they're all getting what they need. What are some of the challenges you know, versus uh, treating, just treating, versus now what you have in your role? The biggest challenge is the things that
1: got me to this position aren't the things that are not going to help me succeed. So it was all about me and developing me. And developing my skill set to ensure that i was in the best position to do my job now my responsibilities have grown to where i have to set the environment to ensure that everybody can grow you know not be as hands-on with a lot of things have to do a lot more delegation a lot of overseeing now don't get me wrong i'm not over the entire department but Mm -hmm. my responsibilities do cater to a big piece of the department so again it's just setting the stage so that others can do their jobs well. So I'm really just a big servant. <laughs> and now I just have to
0: make sure that everybody else can do the jobs that they need to do and set that environment. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we're talking to people at these like higher level, as they kind of climb the ranks a little bit, it becomes less a little bit about hands-on. I mean, you obviously still, like you said, carry a caseload, but a lot of times it's, you know, kind of making sure that everyone else gets what they need to be able to treat the athletes in their best possible like capacity. Um, so yeah. I want to go a little bit more into, you know, kind of that 30,000 foot view when you're working with the patient and, you know, you're trying to get them back onto the court, kind of talk to us a little bit. How is the structure for like the uh, sports medicine team? Um, like, how is the communication between you, the other athletic trainers, the strength coaches, the the uh, dietitians, like the mental health counselors, and even up to like into the front office and like the coach and the GM? Like, how is that communication when you're concerned about one injured athlete, like between all those different professions? Critical.
1: I mean, that's probably the best way I could sum it
0: up because
1: there are so many stakeholders involved in this decision. I mean, first and foremost, it's the athlete. Do they understand what's going on? Are they okay? Do they understand the plan? And then it's those who are working immediately around them. So the person on the medical side, the person on the performance side, nutrition, sports science, the development coach, you know, going up to the head coach, the GM, the owner, the agent. So there are so many people that are depending on this information and you have to give it in real time. So one of the things that I've tried to adopt is anytime that you have to communicate something you got to pretend like it's the game of hot potato. As soon as you get that information you have to get off of it. So communication and timing of that communication is critical to all parties involved.
0: Right. So beyond the timing of the communication, how does your your tone or the way you say the message change when you're talking to the athlete versus when you're talking to, you know, fellow clinicians versus when you're talking to the coach and GM?
1: I mean, you really just have to meet them where they are. So you have to be a dynamic speaker because, again, everybody's looking at things through a different scope. So you have to use language, one, that they actually understand, because a big part of communication is not only delivering the message, but that the message that you're delivering is understood. Which, I mean, it seems simple in stating, but I think that's something that's neglected. We think that we just put words together and we put it in the atmosphere and then the words just fall and make sense to everybody. But that's not the case because a lot of people misinterpret things. So understand, meeting the athlete where they are, understanding that a lot of times they're going to be apprehensive. So you're going to have to come with a tone of empathy. Whereas when you're working with these other stakeholders, whether it's the performance coach or the coach, everybody has a job to do. So it's really giving them the information they need so that they can do their job to contribute to this person getting back. If you're talking to the coach, he wants to win games. He wants to be available. So you're talking, you know, availability is a big thing. And so you want to cater to that, but you also want to use the language like, look, we're doing our best to get them back as fast, but as safely as possible. Cause oftentimes, you know, they're, they're wondering, when can we get them back? When can we get them back? Same thing with the GM, the owner wants to know, because of course that's money on the bench. So you just kind of have to cater the message to the stakeholder, just to whatever it is that you have to understand where they're coming from and then kind of meet them where they are, if that makes sense.
0: Gotcha. Um, So I want to kind of switch to a uh, more clinical question. When you are, you know, preparing these athletes, For you know returning to the returning to sport and you're they're jumping you know 10 feet in the air they're running as fast as they can they're stopping on a dime and they're going through you know nagging injuries or you know long-term rehabs how do you kind of make sure they are prepared to do that as best as they like as to the best of their ability Um, whether it's like a, a hamstring injury that they're kind of nursing and kind of playing through versus when you're you know, it's a, it's a say an ACL rehab, and they're trying to get back onto the court after you know eight nine months of uh, rehab process.
1: Repeat that again, just so, I'll make so sure I make sure.
0: how does how does your reha- how does your rehab mindset change when it's a uh, an injury someone's playing through that they kind of it's kind of nagging, but they're kind of toughing it out versus when it's someone that is recovering from a long term injury like an ACL rehab or something like that.
1: Well, with the nagging thing it's just important. Well, let me back up. So it's one of those things where when these guys come in, we put them through a pretty rigorous onboarding (laughs) where, you know, of course, everyone has a physical to where where there's tests that we do on the medical side. There's tests that we do on the performance side. We come with goals. Same thing with the coaches. We establish our objectives, our goals, our KPIs, whatever you want to use. And then we do things every day to keep them progressing to those things. Cause you know, there's no way to prevent an injury. You just do your best to mitigate it. So these are things that we're starting from day one. Like we don't look at our training room really as a place that you come and get treatment. Like we're trying to get you better so that you can produce on the floor. And so if we're finding these things and tests we're building that into your routine. So I wanted to preface that. So then when you're dealing with these nagging things It's not new. We kind of catch them early so that they don't come to a point where they're keeping you out of the game. So it's just about routine, staying on top of it, doing everything that you possibly can. Because, again, there's not one person that's playing healthy by the end of the year. Everybody has some nicks. But it's just a matter of staying on top of it so that they can be sustained. On the other side of it, you have your return to plays when a person is completely out. You're right because now that's a totally different process because you're essentially having to rebuild them back to a point to where they can get on the court versus the nagging. You don't necessarily have to take them off. So they're not really getting deconditioned, but there's just more variables that you have to take into consideration with the long term, whether it's a tear of a muscle, where it's the tear of a ligament, where if it's a fracture,
0: you know, you just have to go through all of
1: your stages to build them back.
0: Gotcha. Um, And so, you know, when you're, and and your level of sport at the professional level, you have players coming in and out all the time, whether they're being traded, whether they're being drafted, whether you know they're being players are being cut and then picked up later on. Um, you have athletes that you may have never seen before, maybe athletes you've seen you know come in and go in before from like different eras. Um, so, kind of how do you build that athlete buy-in? Because these people are seeing multiple different you know medical professionals, and they want to know who's you know who's actually looking out for their, their better health. So how do you kind of build that buy-in with those, those athletes that I've seen, you know, hundreds of different medical professionals in their career? If, in my opinion, it starts with connection. You can't get trust
1: without connection because you're right. I mean, I feel bad for these athletes. Cause again, in most cases, the people that they're surrounded by have ulterior motives. So it's really difficult for them to trust so for me, the only thing I can do is just establish that connect- connectivity. I'll show them through my daily actions that I am truly here to do what's best for you. So I just it just begins with you establishing that connection because you're right. I mean they've by the time they're getting to you, I mean there's nothing new that they haven't seen, you know, but the thing that is new is you, so you have to put stake into that relationship.
0: Right, because I, I can understand why it'd be so hard. Um, after doing this podcast and hearing, you know, all these different professionals talk about this this topic in particular, you know, they're, they're surrounded by agents that you know may want to are focused on the money. They're worried about coaches who are just focused on winning and may not be looking out for their better health when their body is is their their number one asset. And so, you know, us being in charge, quote unquote, in charge of their their bodies and their health is is one of the most important things. So, getting that, like you said, that connectivity is super super important. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more broadly um, about characteristics of sports PTs. Uh, what are some non-negotiables for, you know, higher level sports PTs that you've seen in your, in your career, something that is absolutely needed um, for someone that's going to work at the professional level.
1: I think you, I wouldn't even say I would just dedicate this to sports, but just in being in the medical field and physical therapy but then also bringing it back to the sport. You're dealing with a clientele that doesn't trust, right? So I think first and foremost, you have to have a servant's heart. Like you have to really be there because you want to help people. Because if that's not the case, then it's going to be difficult to to establish that connection. And then you're not going to really get very far. So I think you need to, to have a servant's heart. You need to be a good communicator because like we touched on prior to this, you have so many people that are involved in this case. In a clinic, in most cases, it's you, the primary care physician, and the patient, maybe the patient's family. When we listed earlier, there's probably about eight or nine or 10 different people, and you have to be comfortable being able to communicate with each one of those individuals differently. So you need to be able to communicate. You need to be collaborative because, again, it's not just about you. It's just like if you're playing on a team, you got to rely on others. You got to play your role. You have to help out. I think you have to have a sense of humility as well, because, again, these jobs are hard to get. Very hard to get. It's I would say because the numbers are less, it's harder to get in these positions as it is in some of the athletes cuz the athletes outnumber us. <laughs> so you need to be humble and be grateful for the experience, not, you know, don't take it for granted. So I would say those are some of the top 3 things now from a hard scores, I mean skill standpoint. I mean, take your craft seriously. You have to have a growth mindset. The moment that you think that you've made it is the moment that every person that you touch goes backwards. And this uh, and our profession is changing so quickly. You can't even keep up with it. So you have to have that hunger to continue to get better, to get better. Um, if you're working in sports, I mean, it's good to – you don't have to be great at it, but it's good to have an awareness of the other departments that you're going to be working with. I mean, you don't have to be a strength coach, but it's good to have an awareness of the things that they do so that you can communicate. The same thing with nutrition, the same thing with sports science, same thing with the sport. The more that you understand about the sport, the more to understand about the position – the more that you can even cater your treatments to that athlete.
0: Gotcha. I think that's a great answer, you know, and in terms of soft, you know, the quote unquote soft skills and the hard skills that might be required for working at that, the professional level. Um, And so I have a kind of a more broad general question. Um, You've been working towards sports since you said your, your senior year of high school, you know, when you decided that you wanted to become a a professional rehab specialist. Um, So why is sports so fulfilling to you? Why is working in this field and, you know, going through job to job and waiting 10 years to kind of finally get your shot? Why has this all been worth it to you? I would say, and I've said this before, but I look at physical therapy and athletic training as
1: my ministry. So at the center of it all is like, I love people and I love to help people. Physical therapy allows me to do that in an intimate way because you're working one-on-one. Like I told you, I've played sports, so I love sports. I've always enjoyed the human body, and I've always enjoyed exercise. So sports, physical therapy combines all of those things that I love. But most importantly, it's about helping people, and that's what drives me to do what I do. That's really what it centers around. I love helping people.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great answer, and I think that's why, or hopefully, why everyone becomes you know a physical therapist or a rehab professional because you know whether they are old young whether they are you know have a spinal cord injury or whether they have back pain you know helping people is kind of at the core of what we do all right michael you kind of talked about it a little bit before but kind of walk us through a day in the life of what it's like to be you um and i'm sure your days vary depending on what type of the year what time of the year it is and you know if there's a game day or a practice day so kind of walk let's use uh like a home game day kind of walk us through what it's like to be you
1: all right, so when you think about game days, you got to break that up to, is it a home game day? <laughs> or yeah, let's, in a let's way, go with home game day. That's a, game it's a, day. a home game day. <laughs> so, I mean, in most cases, we start with a shoot around, uh, which happens right, usually around either 10 or 11 a.m., depending on what coach decides. Um, we usually start, we usually open up the training room two and a half hours before whatever the time is that a person has to be on court. I typically like to get there really early. Like I like to get there around six in the morning and partly is that, so that way I have time to work out. I have some quiet time, (laughs) but then it also gives me a chance to make sure the training room is ready, you know, to get ready for the day. Some of the guys start coming in around eight. Just like I said, each guy has a routine. You know, they come in, check in with us. Some of them stay and get some treatment, go into the weight room do some activation things. So everybody has their own routine. 10 o'clock, they're on the court. So at that point, I'm having to go on the court because one of my other responsibilities is coverage on the court. So that lasts. I mean, shoot-arounds are maybe an hour at the most. After that, maybe some post-shoot-around treatments, but most times we kind of keep that light because we have to be back at the arena around, if it's a seven o'clock game, most of us are getting there around three to start it again, to start the pregame prep. So from 3, pretty much all the way up to 7, we're doing pregame stuff, pregame treatments, taping, whatever. 7 o'clock, that's when you'll see me on the front of the bench because, again, my primary responsibility is the emergency response. I also have to take stats for the coaches, which if you watch – if you see me on the TV, you'll see me with a clipboard. A lot of people are asking, what are you writing? <laughs> so one of the <laughs> one of the unofficial <laughs> – responsibilities of a head athletic trainer is to keep up with fouls and timeouts so in addition to watching the floor making sure that nobody's getting hurt i'm also keeping up with fouls and timeouts and communicating with the coaches who's in foul trouble and things of that nature so my mind literally does not stop once the game it actually is going even more once the game starts games are about two and a half hours so if it's a seven o'clock game game ends about nine nine thirty Post-game treatments, I may leave the arena by 11. Gotcha. So that's a game day. but And that's a home game day. Now if, imagine if it's a travel day. After the game, we're shooting to an airport because we, uh, we typically get right on out of the city depending on where it is. So we're shooting out of an airport. And if we're going back home, most of the times we're not getting home till about 2 or 3 in the morning.
0: Gotcha. So on top of all your your – Responsibilities of taping, of of treatment. You also have to make sure that you're uh, making sure everyone stays out of foul trouble, <laughs> and then also making sure a coach doesn't charge a timeout when they don't have one to to charge. <laughs> Man, let me tell you, I've heard stories where the athletic trainer was responsible,
1: well, partly responsible for the results of a game because of not giving the right information. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> so I'm making sure I'm on Like, no, we don't have any timeouts left. Don't call it. You're not going to test me. It's not going to be on me. <laughs> All
0: right. Um, in your time in the NBA, or you know, specifically with the Wizards, um, do you have any favorite memories or anything that sticks out? Oh man, do I have to keep it with the
1: Wizards? That's you can a keep good it question.
0: And your time in and and the NBA. I don't know. If favorite?
1: I'm not going. That's not go favorite. I'm just going to go most memorable. Cause that's easy. Cause you, depending on the day, I'm going to name something different. The most memorable time was when I was in OKC and it was the game that pretty much canceled sports around the world. So I was a part of that game, OKC versus Utah. Mm-hmm. And so I was there when literally seconds before tip off, the game was postponed and we were ushered back to the locker rooms and nobody knew what was going on. I mean, we were back there for a while. That was by far the craziest thing I'd experienced in my life. Because, I mean, it's just so much unknown. I would say that and then the bubble. The bubble was unreal as well. I mean, just, again, it was during a time where there was so much unknown. We were having to leave our families. I mean, at that time, I literally, we had just had our second child. So she was born in May. And July 1, I was gone. And I was gone for two months so not being able to be home and help my wife with my children and just being secluded i almost felt i felt bad i'm not going to lie because while the rest of the world was dealing with covid you know people without jobs people struggling to put food on the table wondering how they're going to pay rent but here i am i'm blessed i'm in a bubble i'm protected i'm working that was just so surreal so it was really enlightening for me like to, to really be grateful because i was in a better position than the majority of the people of the world and, and it made me feel bad
0: gotcha i, wouldn't so say I would say, say those are like things. yeah those are those are pretty uh pretty monumental like i mean one of them was like signaling you know one of the biggest changes in in the world ever and then the other one is probably one of the you know great unique sports things that's ever happened you know being able to kind of isolate an entire you know playoff series in, into one hotel basically um so those are pretty pretty cool things that you're going to be able to tell your, your kids and grandkids that you're you're a part of absolutely all right last question for you michael um you talked we talked a little bit about it earlier and you kind of touched on it um but do you have any advice for anybody that wants to work you know at higher level sports and professional sports or college sports Um, you know, whether, no matter where they're at in their journey, if they're in PT school, if they're early career, you know, um, you know, early career professionals, anybody that wants to kind of work at your level.
1: Ooh, man, do I have advice? (laughs) I know it's a loaded question. I would say this, and I'll, I'll try not to extend this any longer than what it needs to, but there's a quote that Kind of resonates with this. And I don't know who, it was random. I actually spotted it on the internet maybe a week ago, but it said First comes the dream, then the struggle, then the victory. In order to get to your dream, you must go through the struggle. But most people stop because of the struggle, just short of the victory. And one thing that I would say to everybody is to, like, if professional sports is what you want to do, like go after it, like make a point to go, do what you have to do to get there. Because again, there's not a lot of jobs. I mean, and I can tell you this because I'm speaking as someone who didn't have that network, who had to come from the outside in, and I had to, and I had to inconvenience myself. I say this a lot too. Success is built on the back of inconvenience. And like I told you before, when I was telling you my story, I had to move across the country. I had to travel to classes. I literally went from coast to coast. I've taken pay cuts. I've volunteered. Um, If you look on my LinkedIn, I'm I'm a little embarrassed about it. But I do have the alphabet after my name. I do. But it's not for the sake of having the alphabet. It's because I'm a nerd about this and I want to be great. So I did what I had to do. I saw what the other people were doing that worked in sports. I was eager to do it. So I went out and did it. So do what what you have to do to get there. It's going to be tough. You're going to experience disappointment. You're going to experience quote unquote failure, but things aren't a failure unless you quit. You have to push through it. You have to push through it if you really want to get there. Because if you're not hungry and you're going to turn around the first obstacle, then you're not going to make it into professional sports because there's nothing convenient about professional sports. There's nothing predictable about professional sports. You don't know what day-to-day is going to be. You don't even know what the schedule is going to be. So you need to go ahead and start training yourself to get ready for it because as great as it is, it's very inconvenient. I mean, one thing that most people don't understand is that you don't get to spend a lot of time with your family you're missing holidays. You're missing birthdays. I don't get to see my children a lot. Um, I don't get to spend a lot of time with my friends because I I mean, I'm on call 24 hours a day. And if you're on the medical side, if there's a guy that's hurting and there's a game the next day, you will be up late at night treating them because you're gonna do what you have to do to keep them on the floor. There's nothing convenient about it. It's almost like you're the stagehands of a performance you don't all you see all the people see from the tv is the performance the guys on the player you don't see what happens in the background we're constantly on it's a very sympathetically driven profession so and that takes a toll on your body it takes a toll on your mind so you have to really want it and you have to really love it to get here
0: gotcha i think that's that's great advice um I think one of the people that you've uh, you've worked with before, um, she was actually one of our first guests, Vanessa um, with the Thunder. She said something very similar to to that to your to your message about how you know people see what your your five seconds of fame on TV when you're making sure everyone's got the right amount of timeouts, you know, but they don't see the hours where you are missing your kids' birthday parties or you're missing your you know fam- friends and family getting together. Um, and when you're making sure that you're working, to make sure that these, these athletes are in tip top shape. Um, so that's great advice. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you uh, kind of sharing that with us. Um, Michael, this has been a great, great talk. And hopefully everyone has learned something um, from your experience and your journey. Um, and then do you have anything that you'd like to plug before we get chat here?
1: Yeah, I'm not on a lot of social media mediums. I promise that I'm trying to get better because that's kind of the way the world is moving. <laughs> but um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. My email is on LinkedIn. Um, I will admit when it's in season, I don't check it as often, but I do my very best to respond. It may be <laughs> three or four or five months later, but please believe it's not because I am ignoring you. But yeah, please feel free to reach out to me, partly because I know what it's like not to be able to reach out to someone to give them advice. So I want to be that bridge for others because
0: this is a great this is a great job. So I want to help others get here as well. Gotcha. And Michael, I I am one of those people. You know, we we connected a while ago, and you were willing enough that you know a couple months later you got back to me, and I really appreciate you getting back to me because this has been a super enlightening talk for uh, for us. Um, so again, I appreciate everything that you've uh, given to us today. Um, and with that Thank being said. You. Yeah, this, with that being said, this has been the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. Huge thank you to Michael Ashton, Director of Player Health and Head Athletic Trainer for the Washington Wizards. Michael was very gracious to share his experiences in getting into professional sports. If you liked what you heard on today's podcast or want to hear more episodes from great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening.